This is CPX number 38, The Internal Goods of the Church. We are in the ninth article of the Creed is found in the Catechism of Pope St. Pius X, CPX, ninth part of the ninth part, page 37 to 39. We're doing questions and answers one to nine under the title, The Communion of the Saints. God give you his peace. Let's begin in prayer. In nomine Patris, Sefiri, et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler Spirit, Spirit of Truth, who art present everywhere and filling all things, Treasure of all good and source of all life, come dwell in us, cleanse us, and save us. You who are all good, amen. In omni patris sufiti et spiritu sancti, amen. The communion of the saints, question number one. What are we taught by these words of the ninth article, the communion of saints? Answer, in the words, the communion of saints, the ninth article of the creed teaches us that the church's spiritual goods, both internal and external, are common to all her members because of the intimate union that exists between them. Question number two, what are the internal goods that are common in the church? Answer, the internal goods that are common in the church are the graces received through the sacraments, faith, hope, and charity, the infinite merits of Jesus Christ, the superabundant merits of the Blessed Virgin Mary and of the saints, and the fruit of all the good works done in the same church. Question number three, what are the external goods that are common in the church? Answer, the external goods that are common in the church are the sacraments, the sacrifice of the Mass, public prayers, religious functions, and all the other outward practices that unite the faithful. Question number four, do all the children of the church share in this communion of goods? Answer, all Christians who are in the grace of God share in the communion of internal goods, while those who are in mortal sin do not participate in these goods. Question number five, why do not those who are in mortal sin participate in these goods? Answer, because that which unites the faithful with God and with Jesus Christ as his living members, rendering them capable of performing meritorious works for life eternal, is the grace of God, which is the supernatural life of the soul. And hence, as those who are in mortal sin are without the grace of God, they are excluded from perfect communion and spiritual goods, nor can they accomplish works meritorious towards life eternal. Question number six, do Christians then, who are in mortal sin, derive no advantage from the internal and spiritual goods of the church? Answer, Christians who are in mortal sin, Christians who are in mortal sin still continue to derive some advantage from the internal and spiritual goods of the church, inasmuch as they still preserve the Christian character which is indelible, and the virtue of faith, which is the basis of justification. They are aided too by the prayers and good works of the faithful towards obtaining the grace of conversion to God. Question number seven, can those in mortal sin participate in the external goods of the church? Answer, those in mortal sin can participate in the external goods of the church unless they are cut off from the church by excommunication. Question number eight, why are the members of this communion taken together called saints? Answer, the members of this communion are called saints because they are called to sanctity and have been sanctified by baptism and because many of them have really attained perfect sanctity. Question number nine, does the communion of saints extend also to heaven and purgatory? Answer, yes, the communion of saints also extends to heaven and purgatory because charity unites the three churches, the church triumphant, the church suffering, and the church militant. The saints pray to God both for us and for the souls in purgatory, while we, on our part, give honor and glory to the saints and are able to relieve the suffering souls in purgatory by applying on their behalf indulgences and other good works. Thus are the words of the Holy Pope. 
Okay, let's look in reverse order a few of these. Number eight, why are the members of this community taken together called saints? Answer, the members of this community are called saints because they are called to sanctity and have been sanctified by baptism and because many of them have really attained perfect sanctity. So that's a very interesting answer. You know, a lot of times we Catholics push against Protestants who say the saints are on earth. We insist that they're in heaven. Pope St. Pius X seems to be insisting right here they are both. Uh, in fact, all three. The saints are found here on earth, the saints are found in purgatory, and the supreme saints are found in heaven. But that makes sense because when St. Paul writes, uh, I think the Romans and others, he calls them hoihagioi, the saints. So there are saints here on earth. In some sense, what Pope St. Pius X here is saying is anybody in sanctifying grace. Now, where we disagree with Protestants is the Council of Trent says nobody knows for sure that they are in a sanctifying grace. There are signs given that you're in sanctifying grace, and we can talk about those another time. But the, th the main point I want you to get here is that Pope St. Pius X is implying the saints are those found in the church suffering, the church militant, and, of course, the church triumphant. Okay, number seven said this, Can those in mortal sin participate in the external goods of the church? Answer, those in mortal sin can participate in the external goods of the church unless they are cut off from the church by excommunication. Okay, so what he meant when he wrote this around 1900 or 1910, he didn't mean those in mortal sin can go to Mass and receive Holy Communion. He meant those in mortal sin can go to Mass and not receive Holy Communion. Remember, St. Thomas Aquinas says just attending Mass gives you the grace to come out of mortal sin. doesn't mean you're out of mortal sin until you go to confession. But even attending Mass without going to Holy Communion is enough grace coming your direction by the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass since it's the representation of Calvary to make a good confession. So do you see why it's so dangerous how many Catholics out there go to receive Holy Communion in mortal sin at Mass? Not only are they sacrileging the Eucharist, that's a big thing, but the second thing on top of that is they're overturning the actual grace of conversion of making a good confession. And this is why all through the Middle Ages there were so many Catholics who went to Mass and never received Holy Communion. Now granted, that got a little bit overboard, and that's why this same Pope, Pope St. Pius X, said you should start going to Communion more frequently, you lay people should go to more confession more frequently, but he obviously meant go to go to Holy Communion in a state of sanctifying grace. And frequently, if you look at the saints, that is almost a one-to-one -one correlation. You almost go to communion as much as you go to confession. And this was through the Middle Ages when there wasn't, you know, all of these dangers around us. So I don't want to sound Jansenistic or uh, Pelagian or make anybody scrupulous, but, you know, um, if the saints really had this almost one-to-one -one correlation, kind of, when you read them, between going to confession and Holy Communion, we really got to make sure that we're holy as we approach uh, communion. But let's also take Pope St. Pius X's words, how important it is for lay people to receive Holy Communion as much as possible. And as many of you know, the only places you can do that these days is Latin Mass parishes. Um, and I guess there's some exceptions to that. Okay, question number six. Do Christians then who are in mortal sin derive no advantage from the internal and spiritual goods of the church? Answer, Christians who are in mortal sin still continue to derive some advantage from the internal spiritual goods of the church inasmuch as they still preserve the Christian character, which is indelible, and the virtue of faith, which is the basis of justification. They are aided, too, by the prayers and good works of the faithful towards obtaining the grace of conversion to God. So again, what this is saying is that anybody who's in mortal sin but not excommunicated can still obtain the benefit of all these people around them praying for their conversion. Those on earth, those in purgatory, and those in heaven are praying for the conversion of all Catholics out there who are baptized but living in mortal sin. And this is what we're going to talk about today. Even though this title for today's um, uh, section of the Catechism is called The Community of the Saints, what we're essentially going to call this is 
the internal goods of the church. And that's a very interesting title because most people don't know what it is. I didn't know what this was until I started to study it. And we're going to see that this comes down to merits. The term merit is something that we American Catholics are very embarrassed to talk about in front of Protestants because one thing Catholics and Protestants all agree on is that none of us have any merit without the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. However, we Catholics believe that flowing from the infinite merits of Jesus Christ, we can participate that in that by expanding our own hearts, which does, by our participation, purely by the grace of God, mind you, purely by the grace of God, expand our hearts for an increase of our own glory in heaven. And that's what we're going to talk about today, why this internal goods of the church is communal. This is another thing that's very hard for American Catholics to get because we're so individualistic that we often think, what's my level of glory going to be in heaven? If we even come past that first speed bump to realize heaven's not communist, that there's different levels of glory in heaven, once we're past that, we have to challenge ourselves to say, oh, but we're tapping into this entire power plan of all the merits of the Blessed Virgin Mary, all the merits of the saints, all the merits of the martyrs, and that we can, so to speak, tap into that for our help as this uh, power plan. I'm going to give you an analogy at the end of this that's going to make this a little um, clearer for you. Okay, so let me give you the question and answer here that I'm going to use as my launching point for the rest of today's um, catechism series. It's question number two. Which are the internal goods that are common in the church? And Pope St. Pius X answers, the internal goods that are common in the church are the graces received through the sacraments, faith, hope, and charity, the infinite merits of Jesus Christ, the superabundant merits of the Blessed Virgin Mary and of the saints, and the fruit of all the good works done in the same church. So what I'm going to do now is explain the internal goods of the church connected to the merit of each saint, connected to the merit of each person on earth. And what we're going to do first is look at Ludwig Ott. Some of this is a little bit heady, so at the end of today's catechism section, I'm going to give you four analogies, I think two or three of which I came up with, that should make it pretty easy for you to describe to Protestants why we as Catholics believe all merit comes from the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and yet our participation in that can increase glory and merit. Those might seem like contradictory uh, elements, but they're actually not. So let's see what Ludwig Ott says first. Under the title, The Object of Supernatural Merit, he says this next statement is de fide. That means it's infallible. Quote, A just man merits for himself through each good work an increase of sanctifying grace, eternal life if he dies in a state of grace, and an increase of heavenly glory. De fide. And one of the things he quotes here is St. Paul, 2 Corinthians 9, 6. He that soweth sparingly shall also reap sparingly, and he that soweth in blessings shall also reap blessings. Or some translations say abundantly. He who sows abundantly will reap abundantly. Now, Ott here explains why this is very hard for Protestants to get. So just hang with me for this paragraph I'm going to read you. The Reformers, what he means by that is those involved in the Protestant revolt in the 16th century. Quote, the Reformers denied the reality of supernatural merit. While Luther at first taught that all works of the just man are sinful in themselves on account of the sin remaining in him, he later admitted that a just man, with the help of the Holy Ghost, which he has received, can and must perform good works. But he denied that these are meritorious. According to Calvin, all works of man are before God, quote, impurity and dirt. In the Catholic doctrine of merit, Protestantism sees a belittling of grace and of the merits of Christ, a favoring of external sanctification through works, base self-interest, and pharisaical self-righteousness. Okay, so, you know, like St. Thomas Aquinas would often give a nod in the direction to his opponents before disproving them. So nobody take this next line out of context because I'm going to disprove it. 
But what he's saying here is that Protestants look at Catholics and they say, you're nickel and diming God to death for him to give you more glory when Jesus Christ has fully paid the price. And there's a little truth to that, at least at the external level, people look at Catholics and they might say, oh, this person's racing through this novena and this book and stuff where I just trust in Jesus. What I want you to get today is these are not opposed to each other. Flowing from Christ is our own merits. And that's going to make more sense when I quote you the church fathers and when I give you my analogies at the end. So let's see a few things here. One of these things is from the Council of Orange. And remember, there are uh, dogmatic councils which are infallible, and we've had one pastoral council which is not infallible. But the Council of Orange is assumedly infallible. And it says this, quote, the reward given for good works is not won by reason of actions which precede grace, but grace, which is unmerited, precedes actions in order that they may be accomplished meritoriously, close quote. So what that's saying is that nobody can get the ball rolling without grace. Grace is the initial thing that starts the entire life of a Christian. Nobody can merit that. That comes unmerited to you in baptism. First Peter 3, we are now saved by baptism. And it continues here. The Council of Trent teaches that for the justified eternal life is both a gift or grace promised by God and a reward for his own good works and merits. As God's grace is the presupposition and foundation of supernatural good works by which man merits eternal life, so salutary works are at the same time gifts of God and meritorious acts of man. So even if you do something good, that is by the grace of God. St. Therese, who's uh, behind me, where is that? Right here. St. Therese was the great um, elaborator of that. And think about it, if a baby dies right after baptism, has it done anything to merit its creation and its redemption in baptism? Of course not, but it goes straight to heaven with the beatific vision. So right there, that shows that Catholicism does not believe you need good works to be saved, but good works increase your glory in heaven. And again, that's scriptural. He who sows abundantly will reap abundantly. And then Ott gives us some other lines from our Lord. Notice Matthew 5, quote, and he talks actually here about those who are scorned and persecuted. And then our Lord says, Be glad and rejoice, for your reward is very great in heaven. Matthew 5.12. So notice um, that grace is a gift, but two things right there, right out of the Beatitudes. One, not all gifts of glory are going to be equal in heaven, because our Lord just said, for your reward is great in heaven, and he linked that to being persecuted. And two, these are not detached from our works. Grace, the gift of grace, is not detached from our works. Matthew 25, obviously, quote, Come ye blessed of my Father, possess you the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, for I was hungry and you gave me to eat, close quote. So right there, part of our glory in heaven is our answer to that grace and treating Jesus in the poor, the unborn, everybody, for I was hungry and you gave me to eat. And that's the reason why they were led into heaven. This isn't secondary. Challenge your Protestant friends. Go look at Matthew 25. Now, granted, there are a lot of Catholics who only know Matthew 5 and Matthew 25. So it's kind of funny that we just got to Matthew 5 and 25 because I was watching two bishops from America talk the other day. Uh, they were kind of patting each other on the back. And it was kind of a funny talk because they mentioned how they really believe in Matthew 5 and Matthew 25. I just happened to see that today on Joseph Schomburg's show. And it's like, well, okay, so we Catholics have gone a little bit in the direction of Pelagianism that we almost think that any person who's helping the poor goes to heaven. In that sense, we really are making a very bad example to Protestants because in that sense, we're teaching them we Catholics do not believe that Jesus is the only way to the Father. Let me be very clear. The only way to the Father is through Jesus. Okay, so you can't just go work in a soup kitchen and hope to get heaven. Um, but 
grace actually does give us the grace to increase our glory because our good works are actually a gift from God. But it all starts with God. It all starts at the cross with the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, let's look at the church fathers a little bit. St. Ignatius of Antioch. Remember, he was the friend of St. John the Beloved. So, again, you can challenge your Protestant friends. Did Christianity just get sunk from the first century till the 16th century with Luther and Calvin? Of course not. The water is coolest and cleanest next to the source. So St. Ignatius of Antioch, best friend of St. John the Beloved, who wrote five books of the Bible, quote, where there is great effort, there is rich gain. Now, St. Augustine, let's talk about him because a lot of Protestants still do like St. Augustine. And remember, he pushed against Pelagius. Pelagius was that 5th century heretic from modern-day Great Britain who basically taught, if you're a good person doing good works, you're going to be saved. And Augustine, who had lived this bad life before, saw very, very clearly, no, it was only the grace of Jesus Christ and then being brought by St. Ambrose into Orthodox Catholicism that gave him any chance at salvation. So, this is what he says. And notice how heavy Augustine is on grace. And I think all the Catholics out there who are semi-Pelagian right now, who just kind of think that if you work in a soup kitchen once a year, but you live with your girlfriend, you're going to go to heaven. Listen very closely to Augustine on this quote. Quote, what merit of man is there before grace by which he can achieve grace as only grace works every one of our good merits in us. And as God, when he crowns our merits, crowns nothing else but his own gifts, close quote. So what he's saying to Pelagius and all the modern day Catholics here is that only in grace can you say only grace works every one of our good merits in us. So this is why the most important thing is to stay in sanctifying grace. If you've been baptized, and if there's anyone out there not baptized, go get baptized. If you believe in Christ, go get baptized. And if you've fallen into sin, get to confession. Name every sin because at the words of absolution, you're as clean and as strong as the day that you were baptized. So all your works are just trash if you're not living in sanctifying grace. This is what Augustine's saying. This is what the church fathers are saying. And this is clearly what um, uh, Jesus says. One more quote for you, Mark chapter 9, 40. Quote, for whoever shall give you to drink a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ. Amen, I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Close quote. So right there you have faith and good works. It has to be united to Christ, but giving a cup of cold water to one who belongs to Christ is meritorious. So let me give you four analogies right here to explain this. And I came up with a couple of these and a couple of these um, I did not. So one of these I did not come up with. You probably have heard me say this one before. If you have a piece of wood, remember, imagine this book is a piece of wood and you have been baptized and then this book is your soul, but then you committed a bunch of mortal sins after baptism. What is in here? There's a bunch of nails in there. Those nails are mortal sin. Confession takes those nails out. What's still there? It's a bunch of holes. How are those holes filled? One of two ways, either purgatory or sacrificial acts of love on earth. And so this shows you right there that only the infinite merits of Jesus Christ can take that nail out. You can't work in a soup kitchen for five years to get a mortal sin out. You can't work in a soup kitchen for 10 years to get a nail out. You can't work in a soup kitchen for 500 years to get that nail out. Only the infinite merits of the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ applied by his blood in baptism and confession can take the weight of that, the infinite weight of that nail out of your soul, either by original sin via baptism or mortal sin via confession. But once they're out, our works are meritorious for healing us because these things heal us. So you're healed of your sins. It's justice also, but you're healed of your sins in purgatory. And you're also healed uh, of your sins here on earth by 
um, sacrificial acts of love. It doesn't mean that we are forgiven by anyone but Christ, but there is reparation. And that's a good, that's a good um, segue to my second analogy. The second analogy I plagiarized from Archbishop Fulton Sheen. He talks about how in the mystical body of Christ, there's two ways to make up for other sins. There's reparation, which makes up for your own sins, and there's expiation, which makes up for other people's sins. So let's say maybe someone has committed an abortion. Maybe a good way for them to make reparation is to go work in an orphanage five hours a week or something like that. Um, again, that person can't be forgiven without baptism or confession, but after that, we're making up somewhat for our sins, even though no amount of works can make us forgiven. But it can make up, just because in any relationship you want to make something up. But in the mystical body of Christ, and this is again why this is very hard for a lot of Americans to get because we're so individualistic, there's expiation for other sins. And so what Fulton Sheen explains that to be is almost like a skin graft. So imagine here if I got burned on my left hand really, really badly, and they wanted to take skin from my right hand and graft it to my left hand, that's a skin graft. And imagine you are a certain cell in the mystical body of Christ, and I'm a certain cell in the mystical body of Christ. When you offer up, say, let's say you fast for someone who's left the Catholic Church or something, that's like a skin graft taking up the pain from one area and giving it to another because we can answer for each other. So um, that's a second analogy that reparation makes up for my sins. It's like fasting or wearing a hair shirt or taking cold showers or something. And these are meritorious works. This grows the internal goods of the church. Um, and expiation is when you specifically do that for somebody else. And obviously, when you look at the internal goods of the church, you're adding to that. Of course, it came from Christ. Remember that. Anything that you're doing came from Christ. And then that's a probably a pretty good um, segue to part three. This is one I came up with. Three is power plant. Um, imagine a power plant here on Earth. And if you ever drive by one of those huge power plants with all the barbed wire outside, I have no idea what all of those different uh, contraptions are inside of that whole thing. But obviously, man can not make energy, but harness energy in new ways. Well, that's what, say, the life of a martyr is or the life of a saint. Um, obviously, like Mary would be a power plant the size of Asia. But all of the power plant, where does all of it get its energy? It all gets its energy from the sun. And that's the same thing with the works of the saints and the martyrs is we can find new ways in this power plant to harness it and give it to other people. But ultimately, all of that grace entirely came from Christ. But that doesn't mean our hands are tied. The fact it came from Christ doesn't mean our hands are tied against free will. In fact, we Catholics believe so intensely in free will. If I choose to build a power plant through holiness, through a life of faith, hope, and charity, and as a priest that radiates to other people, that can save more people. That is meritorious. That is adding to the internal works of the church that can be shared with everyone in expiation uh, of their sins and reparation for my sins. Um, but where did all the energy, even from this creative contraption of a power plant that I made, come from? Even that came only from the sun, the single source um, of all this, which in my analogy, obviously, is Christ. And then the fourth analogy is this. Imagine a five-year-old girl wanted to do something really good for her mom and um, found, say, a box of crayons that her mom had just given her and she wanted to give her mom one of these crayons and it was going to really cost her a lot to go give her mom say five of the ten crayons that he gave that she gave him. 
What mom wouldn't be impressed with a five-year-old girl who really didn't want to let go of these crayons, but just says, mom, I want to give you these five of these 10 crayons. Well, how beautiful in the eyes of the mom is that, is that going to be that this little girl did something so sacrificial? But who bought those 10 crayons in the first place? Mom did. Mom bought them. So we're really only giving back to God what, what he's given us in the first place when we're generous. And so that's where I think any process other can understand. We're not pulling ourselves up to heaven by our own bootstraps as Catholics. We do not believe we can be saved by our works without the grace of Jesus Christ. But by what he has given us, we can return a generous life. And Matthew 25 is very clear. That's what we're going to be judged on. And Paul, the great doctor, the great teacher of grace, is also very clear that our works do play into our salvation. Please say an hour, Father, for me. Et benedictio Dei Omnipotentis, Patris et Filii, et Spiritus Sancti, descendet super vos et maniat semper. Amen.